please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. I have the verses on the insert for you. Wanted to also draw your attention to a few coming events. The yellow insert has the next slate of Sunday school classes uh, to start next week. So I'd really encourage everyone to be involved in Sunday school ministry. We have a class for everybody there. Um, you'll see from a beginning class on how to understand the Bible to a study through First John, a study on transforming grace by Jerry Bridges, led by one of our elders. Also, if you're new and visiting and haven't uh, had a chance to take this Meet the Pastor class, this is an opportunity for me to meet you and kind of answer any questions you have about the church, give you basically an explanation of uh, what Redeemer is, what we've been called to do. I also want to encourage you uh, to come this coming Saturday night. We have a a special uh, guest visit of the Dort University Symphony. uh, It's a wonderful band with high-quality music on Saturday night at 7.30 in the gym. Some of our most esteemed members have graduated from Dort University. I feel like I've given them a lot of resources over the years personally. Um, So I'd love for you to come for that. They will also have musical ensembles with us for morning worship, both services uh, contributing to our introit and to our uh, the offertory, things like that. So we look forward to Dort University sending their band to us this next weekend. Now we return to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. We're moving through this wonderful book, this book of beginnings, of foundations, the generations that flow from the first man. So far, our view of this epic related to the flood, chapter 6 to chapter 9, we've done a bit of a high-level overview of this sweeping over to see the details at a distance. We're focusing really on the big picture of what has been occurring. But today I want to draw your attention to the final three verses of chapter 8. This is the concluding scene in this flood episode. What happens after is the, the renewal of the earth and the repopulating of the earth. But what we have here is the final act of Noah as he leaves the ark after 375 days of God's careful preservation and fulfillment of promise. I will read first a couple verses, a few verses out of Genesis 6 that you see there on the insert for context. This is the beginning of the flood account. Then I'll go to the last verses of chapter 8 where we will find ourselves focusing in those last three verses. Here now as I read God's holy word. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we are humbled by the magnificence of your revelation to us. Who are we that you, O God, would stoop to reach us? Yet you have given us your Son, and you have also given us a sure testimony concerning him. Help us by the ministry of your Holy Spirit to understand and apply the truth of your word this day. And not just this day, throughout each of our days and our weeks and beyond. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We see here in this passage Noah's first activity in the renewed world. It wasn't to find himself a meal, it wasn't to build himself a house. It was to worship the God who was great and gracious to save him. This is the far reaching impact of the worship of God on display when we see the Lord's response to this worship from the redeemed. Now, perhaps you have been viewing, as I have, the images coming from Ukraine in these last few days. And most striking to me, as you can imagine, is to see how the pastors of the churches in Ukraine are shepherding their flocks through this difficult time. The most striking pictures to me have been ones where we see Christians gathered for worship even while bombs are coming down. There have been Christians pictured worshiping outside. There have been Christians worshiping in an underground subway station. There was a picture yesterday morning that was striking to me. It was at a Christian school that was initiated and run by the Slavic Gospel Mission. They were in the basement of their Christian school with some exercise equipment in the back, background and 12 or 15 Christians huddled together praying and worshiping God while their city was being shelled. These are powerful images to see. I'm not the only one who sees them. The world sees Christians worshiping their God in times like this. For Christians in free places like us, these images of those Christians, our brothers and sisters worshiping God under such duress, they're convicting, but they're also inspiring and encouraging pictures. It, it moves us to a greater depth of appreciation for our great God and his great grace that he has shown us. It's powerful when Christians worship. It's powerful, powerful for those who are worshiping. It's powerful to see them worshiping, and it has an impact to proclaim the greatness and the grace of God beyond even the walls of the church or the experience of just Christians. A worshiping church is a powerful statement about our view of God's greatness and his grace. Nothing that happens in this world should ever stop us, should ever stop the saved, ever stop the redeemed from pausing to give God glory for his greatness and his grace shown to us in Christ. Certainly, we have in Noah's first actions as he disembarks from the ark, we have in the person of Noah, the example of Noah, the impact and the power of worship when the redeemed sees God in his proper place and bows before him. 
as the floodwaters go away and it becomes possible to leave the ark, his first action is to glorify God for his greatness and his grace. This is a powerful indicator of what God has done, the change that God has wrought for all the evil that was on the wor- in the world. And b- even though the nature of mankind is not radically changed here, we see the greatness of God on display to Noah in the touch of his grace to save him and his family physically, pointing to a greater spiritual reality. It moves Noah to reflex, to respond with praise. People of God in every generation should not underestimate the impact of the worship that we participate in when we come together to give God the glory due his name for his greatness and his grace. Because when the redeemed worship God, the whole of creation benefits. And we see this in the story of Noah. Now let's recall for a moment what builds up to this point in these last two verses, these last three verses of chapter 8. The buildup has been obvious. It's been a buildup of promise concerning God's grace. Yet, there's this judgment that comes because of sin, very real sin. God's saving by grace is the thing that makes Noah ultimately respond with worship. And this is the same thing that causes us to respond. It's his greatness in his grace. The problem is, without his grace to reconcile us to him, we can't recognize his greatness. Once we are reconciled by his grace, saved by his grace, saved to worship him, then his greatness opens up to us and we can do nothing else but bow before him. That's the response. That's the reflex to his grace. And we should not underestimate when the church takes that posture, wherever God places us, it benefits all of creation. We'll see this unfold. First, we see God saving us by his grace leading up to this point where Noah responds with worship. Early in the, in the book of Genesis, God responds to the sin of man by promising a second Adam. The first Adam falls. He promises a seed from the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent, to be the second Adam. And really, the, the Bible has complexities. I'm not underselling that. But there is a main theme that we ought to grab hold of here. There is the first Adam in sin, and there's the second Adam who is Christ, the righteous one. Which Adam do you align with? Unless you have rested in the second Adam, you're still stuck in the first one. Choose this day, by God's grace, to align yourself with the seed of the woman who came to crush the head of the serpent, the promised Messiah. The promise of grace happens early. Chapter 3, already a promise of God's grace, a commitment to send one to save us from our sins. Then we come to the life of Noah just before the episode with the flood, and we see God look upon the earth. Humanity descended into terrible wickedness and violence, the devil himself meddling in the whole of it to somehow mess up the seed of the woman that would bring the Messiah. The earth is to the point of God describing the human condition as the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not all he says. That's the most powerful thing he says about how bad it was. And God rightly, justly decides to bring judgment, to bring justice. But at the same time, Noah finds favor with God. Now, it's not that Noah was so attractive. God had promised to bring forth the seed. He chooses Noah to place his favor upon. And Noah 
in response to this great grace that God shows him, he obeys God's commands. He walks with God. He recognizes God for his greatness and his grace. Noah receiving God's gracious favor is another show of God's saving grace. Then God manifests his grace by saving Noah on the ark. And not only saving Noah, but by association with Noah, saving his family too. That's the Genesis 6 passage that I referred to you at the beginning. God sees the condition of mankind and rightly, righteously, justifiably says, I will bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under the heavens. Totally justified. But God remembering his promise of gracious salvation through the seed that would come, he tells Noah, come onto the ark with you, your sons, your, your wife, your son's wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh. He'll keep them alive, promises them salvation. God's covenant promise to Noah here in chapter 6 is his promise of saving grace. It's his covenant of grace renewed in Noah, progressed in Noah. The salvation of Noah and his family is a picture of the saving grace. I want you to think for a moment before we go to see Noah's reaction to the saving grace. Think of all the ways that the story or the account of Noah and the great flood, how it preaches the message of God's saving grace to us on multiple levels. It's truly a dynamic gospel story in every way. Sure, there's the physical, incredible, magnificent, glorious, physical salvation of Noah and his family in the most unlikely way with a flood coming, an all-inclusive flood, nowhere to go, yet he saves them physically through this ark. But there is more to the story, as you well know, and as the New Testament unfolds, as Jesus describes. But first, think of Noah, the person himself, and you have the t- a picture of Jesus right there. As the theologians say, he's a, a type of Christ. Noah represents one who's filled with grace and truth, one who speaks the truth, follows and obeys God. He's a picture of the ultimate perfected version of this, the one who is faithful and true, full of grace and truth. Christ, he's a picture of the Christ to come. Noah follows God's instructions. He trusts God. Because God accepts Noah, he also accepts Noah's family. It's not because of his family, but it's because of the righteousness of Noah. It's because of Noah's merit that his family may enjoy salvation. So when God looks upon Noah and he sees his family there with him, he saves the whole of them because of Noah. This is a perfect picture of Jesus. God accepts you because you're in Christ. If you're united to Christ, it's because of Jesus' merit that he accepts you. It's not because of your merit, anything you have done, it's because you're rightly related to Christ. Noah is a picture of this to his family. It reminds us of this gospel of God's saving grace. But I want you to think on another, another level as well. It's not just Noah. The ark itself is a bit of a picture of Jesus once again. The ark is the way to be saved from the worldwide judgment of God. The only way to be safe from all the waters encompassing all the earth where there's nowhere to hide, there's nowhere to go, is you have to be in that ark. When the judgment waters are there and rightly there, there's only one place to hide, in the ark. The only way to be safe from the wrath of God is to be in Christ. In that way, he's the ark of salvation. In Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, the wrath of God is appeased. 
no escaping except for this one way, through Christ. Third, I want you to think even more at a more detailed level. The ark itself also represents something of the church, Christ's church. There's a sense in which the ark represents the place that is the body of Christ, the place that professes Christ. People should be able to come to the church and know Christ. They should learn who Christ is through the church. So in this way, as we live in a world of turmoil and chaos, disruption and confusion, where should people be able to go to hide from that and find salvation? They should be able to go to the church. And to the degree that the church is faithful to the proclamation of the person of Christ, they should be able to go there and find safety because they find safety in Jesus. All those things we described about Christ in the confession questions or the catechism questions, this is what the church of Jesus should be preaching and teaching about Christ so that the world in this lost world out there can come and find Christ. They can come to the ark, which would be the church in the midst of the flood and the storm about us. The count of Noah ultimately is a fulfillment of the gracious covenant of grace of God. Of course, it's a physical one on the front level. This is the immediate cause for rejoicing and praising God, but it was not lost on Noah the much greater significance of what had been done. Noah and his family lived through an actual flood. They experienced all sorts of God's grace the whole of the time. Then they experienced the deliverance from the ark and into the new world that they were called to re, be part of the renewal and the repopulation thereof. What would Noah do when those doors finally opened? You remember there was a series of seven days. We sent out the ravens seven days later, the dove, then again the dove, seven days. So now we're at the beginning of a new set of seven days. The beginning of the week, you might say. And it's the beginning of the new creation, the renewed earth. And everyone, Noah sees them all off the ark. And it's as if he gets to the end of the ramp, assuming there's a ramp, there's a door, whatever the case may be. And the first thing he looks around for are materials, to build an altar unto God, not for a feast, not for a party or celebration or for shelter or any of the other things that he might do that you would say, that yeah, makes sense. You got to do that. He pauses to give his worship to God for God's greatness and his grace. That's the response. That's the reflexive response of any people who've been saved by God. When we've experienced the salvation of God, we reflex or respond naturally with, thank you, God, you are great and greater than my circumstances and greater than all my sin. You give us Christ. And that causes me to bow down and cry holy, bow down and thank him for his grace. That's the response Noah has immediately, and that should be the response of all the redeemed. As we contemplate what God has done for us, we should naturally want to give him praise, public praise for his greatness and for his grace. That's what we see. Verse 20, look there with me. Then, then, what's then? Then after 375 days on the ark, after almost a century before that of building the ark, of all those years living in the wicked evilness of the earth where everyone was evil all the time, after all that, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Much we can learn from this simple act of Noah, this simple act of worship. It's his first act after disembarking. We should not undervalue what is meant by this, what is depicted by this. 
the first day of a new week and he wants to begin by calibrating himself around the greatness and the grace of God. Whatever the new earth will look like, it should start with the people who've been saved worshiping him. That all creation witnesses us give praise to the God who is great and gracious. And that should be the same attitude that the church has the first day of the week. Let's come together, pause everything else, and look to the greatness and grace of our God. Because any blessing we've ever experienced in any moment of our life, especially starting Monday, but every day and every minute otherwise, is because of the greatness of God and his grace to us. And we could spare to give a little time to just pause and only care about him and not worry about ourselves. And we do that for 90 measly minutes. You have Noah here with building an ark, or, uh, building an altar, and then sacrificing. This is not an hour and a half affair. But there's the least we could do as a people of God as we gather together like this in this public way. We also see in this action of Noah, this worship is a response to the twofold, uh, these twofold features of who God is, his attributes, his greatness and his grace. There are more attributes to God that we can mention for sure. But greatness just encompasses so many of just who he is and beholding God in all his attributes. But his grace is that we could even understand this, that he would stoop to let us, to condescend to let us relate with him in Christ. So we come seeing his transcendent greatness, yet his personal salvation extended to us in Jesus. These two features of God call us to worship. When Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That's a response to his greatness. The sacrifices he does with a very important resource, these animals, shows a dependence on the great God, that God is greater than him. And though it doesn't make logical human sense to kill and sacrifice these things that could be needed when there's not much resource yet available on the earth, to do this shows dependence on God who provided them in the first place. It's an acknowledgement of the greatness of God, at least on one level. It's a confession of his finiteness, and that's what we do in worship. We confess we are finite to God. But also, it's a profession of faith in God that he'll provide more. I'll give you the sacrifice because I know you provide it anyways, and you'll give us what we need. It's a confession of our finiteness, a profession of our faith in him. And also, the animal sacrifices and burning them up. This is a reference also to the, for the need for atonement, for that he's a sinner, that, that there has to be sacrifice made. And this, of course, pictures the sacrifices yet to come and the ultimate sacrifice in the second Adam himself. Noah gives a confession of his finiteness, a profession of faith, an admission that he needs atonement, that he needs deliverance. It's also a thankfulness for the deliverance that has been provided. Hughes, Kent Hughes, says, joyous worship, surrender, and atonement were in this offering. When we come to worship God, we bow before his greatness, and we thank him for his grace. We don't bring burnt sacrifices anymore. Instead, we remember the sacrifice to end all the sacrifices. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, it's a picture of the sacrifice God has made for us. And we come in this formalized setting to some degree. It's a public setting where the people of God come together. We worship individually as well, as families as well. But this is a high point in the life of the redeemed to be able to assemble like this and partake in God's means of grace, to bow before his greatness and thank him for his grace and even feed upon his grace even more. And we have this with Noah and his fellowship as he disembarks the ark 
I want you to notice something else, because it's interesting when you start to think of how did he know what to do here. We can say for sure that God at some point made clear to Noah and others in his era before the time of Moses what he desired to be given in worship. God prescribed some feature of what to worship. This isn't something that was imagined by man. It would not be a logical imagination for a man like Cain and Abel when they brought sacrifices. Clearly, they knew this is what God desired. Now we have Noah making a sacrifice. After Noah and before Moses, when it's really clear in the law of Moses, you have several cases where the patriarchs build an altar and worship God. You even have the case of Abraham who's about to sacrifice his son. It's understood that God requires a sacrifice for all these reasons that Noah understands it. The key here is God prescribes what pleases him. I know of a college student who was going to a small college in Nebraska. He was raised in a farming family, and he was there training to be an engineer. He still worked on the weekends back at the home farm, and they were raising livestock in addition to growing crops as well. But their main livestock were cattle and goats. And these were organic. This means they were grass-fed and grass-finished. I mean, they lived out, and this is an expensive, expensive meat and expensive products that come from this organic farm style that they had. He was a student and he was struggling with a particular math class that he had to have completed and passed with a C or better in order to continue on in his engineering course. So there was a master's student who was working as a teacher's assistant and also a tutor to students who had trouble. And it was part of their work study, so they only got paid so much, not nearly as much as they deserved for what they were doing in their tutoring. And this man understood how much this teacher, this master's student, this tutor was doing for him a whole semester of regular meeting to keep him above a C because he needed it to stay in the program, and he was a junior. Finally, he takes his last exam, and he passes the class with a C+. He's so grateful for what this really selfless tutor did for him. So he wanted to give him a gift to show him thanks, to return thanks. So one weekend when he was home, he brought back 40 or 50 pounds of prime beef. He brought jugs of goat milk and goat cheese, hundreds of dollars worth of, of product that he brought back just to say thank you to this tutor who had helped him. Well, when he brought it to the tutor, the tutor said, I appreciate your sentiment or what you meant by it, but he had a particular disease that made him unable to eat any of the products. He was, had to be effectively a vegan. He just wanted to say thanks, and so he imagined for himself what it would be that would be a way of showing thanks without knowing or checking with the person. Well, meaning maybe, but not anything they could actually take. And as he talked with the teacher, the teacher realized, see the sentiment, and the person wanted to say thanks. It so happened that there was multiple problems with his car, and he knew that the student was very mechanical. He worked out a deal where he said, if you could help me with these various things. And of course, the student was ecstatic that that's what I wanted to know. How can I thank you? And I could definitely do this for you. And it was meant a lot to that teacher. God calls us to worship him. We shouldn't just imagine what it is he might like us to do in worship. He tells us what he wants from us. He wants sacrifice. He wants various elements that unfold throughout the scriptures. And after Christ comes, it becomes even clear these things picture Jesus. And still, there's quite a bit of prescription given to the people of God to keep this main thing the main thing. We are bowing before the great God who has been gracious to us. That is timeless. 
And that's what governs. Our understanding of God and what he has done governs what we do when we come to worship. And the elements of worship that God lays out as the scripture progresses all feed that point. It's about him and what he calls us to, not the latest popular worship conference. It's not about taking a cue from what the world likes stylistically and decide we're going to attract them. That's not the, people will sometimes leave church and say, I'm not saying necessarily that I've heard it here. I just know over the years, I probably said it myself at some point. I didn't get very much out of church today. That doesn't matter. Did God get out of church what he should get out of? Did God get out of worship what we should have brought? In fact, one of the greatest things we do is stop saying we go to church. We're going to worship. We are going to lift the God of the universe up, his greatness and his grace. And that should be how we judge what happens. Did we lift and exalt the greatness of God? Did we celebrate the grace of God to us? Did God hear our praise for what we know he has done for us and who he is? That's how we evaluate whether worship is successful or not. Was God praised? That's the question. And that will have an effect on us. We'll realize that. Here we have worship for the glory and the blessing of God, not for how it may make Noah feel. Noah's particular actions reflect a heart of faith, repentance. In fact, when you start to get to the New Testament and you have all this revelation that's happened and the people of God on the other side of Jesus' sacrifice and Paul's writing to them, listen to the description of the people of God, the redeemed. In Philippians, he writes, we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He's talking to a worshiping people as their key identifying feature. Peter writes in his first epistle, You also, talking to you, the Christians, the church, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are called, you are saved, you are redeemed to worship God. That's what you're called to. That's who you are. In Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, according to the mercies of God, in response to the great mercy of God shown to you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The people of God are identified as a worshiping people, a people acknowledging the greatness and the grace of God. Back to our text, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, we move to the last two verses of the text because this shows you what comes from this worship. Now, this is using anthropomorphic language. We've seen this before in Genesis. It's a way of God describing himself in human terms. Speaks of his heart. Speaks of him remembering. It's not that he has a human heart or that he's forgotten something so he has to remember it, is using language that helps us appreciate the personal touch that God has for mankind, especially his covenant people like Noah. And we see in verse 21 and 22 an impact that God ties together with the worship of him. Look at verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... Again, this anthropomorphic language that God smells the smoke wafting up, ascending into heaven, and he smells it, and it comes from a person of faith laying down these animals as a confession of sin, as a thankful offering. 
he smells this savory aroma, this pleasing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. So there's, God ordains this whole episode to build to this point where there's now established again the worship of him through the man Noah. And I will never do this again like this. There's not the promise that there will never be judgment again because we know that in the final day there will be that judgment. It won't be water again. It'll be by fire then. And there's a lot to be done between now and then. And God says in response to the worship of Noah, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Is it because man's been renewed himself and now is no longer sinful? No, look at what it says next. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is a a statement of God's grace that he will do this, that he will bring preservation as his plan unfolds to bring the seed eventually. It says, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And this isn't a matter of him second-guessing what he did. This is a matter of revealing what he's doing in working his plan. But all of this revelation, this clarity about what his will is, flows from Noah rightly recognizing God to be great and gracious through worship. God further promises in verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. When we look at chapter 9, I'll refer to these verses again to see the fullness of what God promises after the flood. Now, I want us to be careful to recognize in chapter 6, it was God's covenant of grace to Noah about salvation. Here, we see that fulfillment, but then we have another covenant, or at least an extension of it, that goes beyond people's salvation. It's just a statement about God maintaining his hand of common grace across the earth, that he would allow for things to be steady so that the fullness of his plan could unfold that would include the saving of his people. It's a beautiful picture of God's approach to, yes, his people, but also the benefits that all creation gather because of his worshiping devoted people. This is what we see. In a sense, we'll note that God responds to worship. Again, in human terms. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, Noah's worshiping, when the Lord noticed, when the Lord took in this worship, he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. I don't mean to suggest that as the church worships, worships aright, that he'll have this, this big of an impact on the world around us every time. But I am saying that as the church worships, the message of God goes forth to the world. It changes us. It changes our local community of the church. And it expresses something to the world outside about what we believe concerning God. That he is great and he is gracious. Somebody may, not, may come off the street and not understand everything Christians do in our context or our style. But they should walk away from any Christian church that's faithful to Christ and his word, whatever the style may be. They should be able to walk in and gather after a certain amount of time. These people think God is great. And they think that he loves them through Christ. That's how you tell whether the church is following it the way God would describe. Is that the sense that you would get when you walk into the assembly of believers? God is great and he's gracious. And we could tell by what they're doing here by what they're participating in. This is what we look forward to seeing in our church, in any church that seeks to represent God to the world around us. I think we sometimes make it more complicated than it is when it comes to reaching the world. Yes, we make evangelistic efforts to preach the message of the gospel. But at very basic level, 
The church should pursue the right worship of him, and then that will flow naturally. If you are rightly related with God on a regular basis, checkpointing individually as families, but then as a church, you come together on the Lord's Day Sunday, we gather together, and we contemplate the greatness of God for some time together, and we thank him for his grace. If you grip what you've been saved from and then respond with worship, you will not be able to hold back expressing the gospel to your family around you and to your neighbors and to people that you come in contact with. Um, Evangelism flows from the right worship of God. And ultimately what our goal is is not to get everybody saved from hell, it's to get everybody worshiping God's greatness and his grace. That's what we want to see. And that starts with the church worshiping God, not by anyone else's imaginations, but by God's. He tells us what to do. And as we do it, by the way, it actually will give us a sense of awe and joy that transcends whatever style or epic we may live in. God responds to worship presented in faith, and we see this in his beautiful expression Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, I'll keep things, I will keep things on the level, functioning, so that this work that he is doing can be done. Because of the faithful worship of Noah, God, on the human explanation level, was making a commitment about preserving the earth in a certain way. The impact of Noah's obedience and his subsequent worship was to benefit the whole of creation. We see this, this impact of an obedient, faith-filled, worshiping church. It goes beyond what we gain personally in our times of worship. We declare the place of primacy of God in our lives and over life in general. And we declare that we're related with him because he's reached to us in Christ. He's paid for our sins. He's taken away the dividing wall of separation, and now we can have fellowship with him, and we want everybody to have fellowship with him. We want all creation restored, and God will bring ultimate restoration. He'll do so ultimately by fire. In the meantime, we're not shutting the door of the ark. We want as many people to come on the ark as possible. The simplest way for people to be drawn is by the people of God worshiping a God that's worthy to be bowed down before. Specific response, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground. Until God brings his final judgment, he will safeguard these cycle of seasons and we look forward to all that he will do through his redeemed. We have to keep things very simple, at least at the base level, to see to it that we are worshiping him for his greatness and his grace. I open by calling your attention to the worship of Christians in Ukraine right now because it's so vivid, but I'm not unaware of the fact that Christians have been doing this kind of thing for millennia under great duress. There's a famous picture. It's one of my favorite of the ancient church's era. It's a rendering of a true event in the first century, about 70 years or so after the ascension of Jesus. There's a group of Christians being persecuted somewhere around Rome. And the picture is a group of these Christians with their elder, their pastor, their bishop at that time a group of maybe 20 Christians who were thrown into a Colosseum, maybe the Roman Colosseum, maybe another one. But there are lions circling around, and it's for sport, and there's a huge audience ready to watch these Christians be torn apart. And there they huddled together, bowing down, and their bishop stood up and led them in a prayer to God, in a time of worship to God. What a powerful picture to all those who are watching just before they see these people be devoured. 
They're stories of Christian prisoners in places of persecution gathering to pray in cells or in dungeons or containment boxes and finding another Christian and praying with them, worshiping, worshiping God in the midst of their difficulty. What a powerful message about the greatness and the grace of God, no matter what man can bring by way of destruction. There's an account during World War I that I was reminded of and seem to be reminded of every time around Christmas. In 1914, Christmas Eve, there was a, the Christmas Eve truce where the German soldiers and the English soldiers paused their battling for just long enough to come to the center of the battlefield, read scripture, and sing Silent Night. What a picture of the greatness and the grace of God. There are pictures of Chinese Christians meeting in basements to worship, contemporary pictures. There are accounts of Christians in Iran doing the same thing. The message of the worshiping church is powerful. It has a far-reaching impact on all of creation. I want to close by reading a statement by R.S. Candlish, who wrote one of the best commentaries on Genesis. I don't often read his full quotes because they're long, but this one is so appropriate to close this sermon on Genesis 8, 20 through 22. Candlish wrote, The judgment of flood is but the type of the still more awful judgment of fire to come. The earth saved from water is reserved for fire. The Lord is preparing a stronghold, an ark of safety. It is the ark of his everlasting covenant to which all that will believe may flee. In this ark, or in other words, in Christ. Let us hear the words of the Lord. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers. The chambers prepared, made ready and set wide open. In the Lord's ark, which is his Christ, his anointed one. Let the Lord hide us now. Let him shut us up into Christ's blessed gospel of reconciliation. Let him shut us up into Christ himself. Then, Candlish writes, although the elements should melt with fervent heat, and this earth and these heavens should be dissolved, we in Christ shall be hidden in security, floating in air above the fiery storm. And finally, as the judgment passes away, an olive branch will be brought to us from the renovated world in the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. We shall dwell forever with the Lord and offer the sacrifices of praise continually to him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, we have come to the end of this section of your word that recounts the great flood of judgment that you put over the earth in the days of Noah. Yet, O oh Lord, we know the words of our Savior when he told us, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. O Lord, may we be ready as your people. And as the key indicator of our readiness, O Lord, may we worship your greatness and your grace, no matter what is swirling around us, as individual believers, may we present ourselves as living sacrifices and as a church, not neglecting to assemble together and worship you each Lord's day, no matter what is happening in the world around us. We long for your greatness and for your grace to be proclaimed to all and embraced by all. Pray this in the name of Christ, our ark of salvation. Amen.